The Spectator is having a flash sale. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12, in print and online. Plus, we'll give you a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey, completely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Be quick, the offer ends on Monday. Hello and welcome to the edition. The Spectator's look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, three vaccines effective against coronavirus have now been found, but can Britain recover from the scars that it leaves behind? Plus, will Labour become the party of the working class again, or is it just for cosmopolitan liberals? And finally, is the new Mary Wollstonecraft sculpture in Newington Green a good reflection of her character? First up, James Forsyth writes in this week's cover piece about the economic, educational and health challenges that Britain will face after the virus goes away. How will the country recover? To discuss this, he joins me now alongside Jeremy Hunt, former Health Secretary and former Foreign Secretary and now Chair of the Health Select Committee. James, in your cover piece this week, you say that while victory over coronavirus looks imminent, it has come at an extraordinary cost. How great do you think that cost will be? It is going to be huge. You heard at the uh, the spending review yesterday that, you know, for every, even at the time of the next general election, at the end of this parliament, the government is still going to be borrowing over £100 billion a year. So that is the kind of economic damage. Then there is the societal damage. You know, uh, I think they, the view in Whitehall is it's going to take two to three years for the effects of lockdown to kind of wash through the education system. Yes, there'll be exams in England this year, but they're going to have to be accompanied by a series of kind of in inverted commons kind of fairness measures to try and, and ensure that, that kids who suffered the most during lockdown aren't too discriminated against. Then there is the waiting list in the NHS at the end of this, which you know we know is bad now. But I think that doesn't really tell the full story because the number of referrals from GPs is down by a third during this crisis. I think that is not because people haven't been getting sick. It's because people have been worried about going to medical settings because of the risk of getting infected and so have stayed away. So I think you're going to have you're, the country. Is, there's a real risk that the country kind of has long COVID at the end of this as it tries to deal with all of the problems that this crisis has left behind. Jeremy, the Prime Minister said he thinks the debate over the over how to tackle these challenges could be the biggest political argument of his lifetime. Do you think that's the right assessment? I don't think it'll be the biggest political argument of his lifetime. I think that's much more likely to be, you know, big geopolitical issues uh, relating to things like the rise of China and the future of uh, liberal democratic societies. But I totally agree with James's analysis. You've got two very conflicting pressures here. Um, One of them is what you might call the Japan risk, where after they had a banking crisis in Japan in the 1990s with over-leveraged banks. The government got into this vicious cycle of trying to reflate the economy with more and more public spending and more and more cheaper debt, and it just failed. And they basically had a couple of decades of stagnation. And that's the big risk that George Osborne was terrified of in, in 2010, and we should be rightly worried of here. And that's why you have to get the enterprise economy going. You have to set free the entrepreneurs who, who in the end, are the only people who will power us out of this. But on the other hand, what the electorate want is to meet the crisis with more ambition, not less ambition, when it comes to public services. And I 
think, for example, for the NHS, in a way, this is a 1948 moment. 1948 was the year the NHS was founded. It was in the aftermath of the war. We were bankrupt, but we had a big vision then. I think what we've got right in the NHS is the access to care, but we haven't always got the quality of care right. And this is a moment with some far-reaching reforms that we could fix that, as we could for the social care system and many other areas. James, you make the point in your piece that Labour will come up with its own solutions and you say that will be big government, huge taxes, minimal personal freedom. But, but do you think it's fair to say that's also what the Tories might have to be proposing as well? I think this is the big challenge, which is, uh, I think, you know, A, Boris Johnson says he doesn't want to go back to austerity. The Tories' new electoral coalition makes that more difficult in terms of cutting spending. But it's also true that the low-hanging fruit of austerity was all picked in the last decade. So I think that tax rises will have to do more of the work on fiscal consolidation than uh, previously thought. I mean, there's a, a big question as to whether the Tory party is prepared to make the tough choices necessary to do that. You know, I think if you look at the, the, the spending review yesterday, when we get to the end of this parliament, I think we will look back on the public sector pay freeze for workers earning over £24,000 a year and cutting foreign aid by 0.2% as relatively easy decisions in the grand scheme of things. But you only have to look at the uh, political reaction to both of those measures today to see how hard it is going to be to maintain political and parliamentary support for the kind of measures that are necessary if we're not going to be borrowing far more than 100 billion a year at the end of this parliament. Yes, I mean, I'm one of the people who's been making noise about the cut to the foreign aid budget, because for me, it's just not part of the definition of Britain and what it stands for, that at a moment of crisis like this, we make the very poorest in the world pay the price. So I really do hope the government rethinks on that one. But I think your broader point, James, is right. I think it's very, very difficult to see straight tax rises happening. But I think there will be a lot of debate in areas uh, like, for example, the, the higher rate pension tax relief, stamp duty reforms, uh, whether we should get relief on our principal residence for capital gains tax, uh, equalising capital gains tax and income tax. And I could see a lot of the strain being taken there because what we heard yesterday was fairness between the public sector and the private sector and a recognition that the public sector has not had the job cuts that the private sector has had. But what the country will also want to hear going forward is that wealthier people are bearing more of the strain than less well-off people. And we haven't had that bit of the message. And obviously, for a Conservative Chancellor, there are a lot of sensitivities on that. Yeah, I, I think that I can understand why the cut to the foreign aid budget has received the reaction it has. But I think it is worth seeing this in the kind of historical context, which is that you know, the big rise in development spending was essentially part of the post-Cold War peace dividend. And I think you need to see that cut in relation to the big uplift in defence spending that that was announced the week before. And I think it is clear now that defence spending is something that Jeremy argued for in the, in his, when he was running against Boris Johnson for the Tory leadership. Defence spending is heading back to the kind of levels it was 
during the Cold War, simply because, you know, great power competition is back. You know, China is now clearly uh, a military uh, issue that the the, the Western powers led by the United States, but also including Britain, are going to have to respond to. And and so I think you need to look at the role that Britain plays in the international system. I think if you are going to spend substantially more on defence, given that the UK is borrowing over £100 billion a year, you you will need to spend less on something else. And given the systemic role Britain plays in the international system, I think international aid is probably the obvious candidate for that. Indeed, when when Michael Fallon was Defence Secretary, he used to argue that you should have a kind of joint defence and development budget on the basis that the security that the British military presence it creates or helps to create, I should say more accurately, you know, that is essential for economic development in places. You know, for example, you know, in Mali, where the British military are currently deployed, you know, that mission is not regarded as odable because it re- involves kinetic force. But if you're going to see economic development there, it's also crucial to it. I mean, I very much agree that you need to look at defence spending and international aid together. But if you look at why it is that this small island with 0.8% of the world's population, is still one of the 10 most powerful countries on the planet. It is because we've always championed causes that go beyond just our narrow national interest, whether it's democracy, free trade, the rule of law. And lifting people out of extreme poverty is, is one of those. And the great sadness about what's happened is that we are basically signalling the end of a global commitment to 0.7% because we were one of the few people that was meeting it. And because we signed up to 0.7%, lots of other countries uh, moved towards it. Maybe they didn't quite get there, but they got to 0.4%, 0.5%. Now we're going backwards. That will also, I'm afraid, have a, a similar effect with other countries. And we will be seen less of a country that is championing global norms uh, and more of a country that is looking to our own interests. And I think just at the point of Brexit, when we're wanting to put out a, a positive global international vision of our future, this was the wrong thing to do. Jeremy, just finally, what's the mood like in the Tory party now that news of the vaccine has been announced? Well, I think the mood in the Conservative Party is actually very similar to the mood in the country, which is that we do feel there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think in that context, people will go along with whatever restrictions are advised for Christmas. Um, the big moment now is is Easter. And, um, you know, I think uh, people sort of talk about a reset moment. This has been a horrible year for the government and for the Conservative Party. Um, but I think next year is looking much more encouraging, partly because as we move beyond the pandemic, the whole debate will be on economic recovery. And that is something that we as Conservatives specialise in. We've done it time and time again and successfully. And I think the fact that Trump did so much better than we people were predicting in America is because they basically trusted Trump and the Republicans on jobs. And I think this is our core territory as Conservatives here. So I think it'll be a much better year. Jeremy and James, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, after the Red Wall collapsed in last year's general election... The new leader, Keir Starmer, has tried to win back their traditional base. In this week's magazine, Paul Embury says he needs to do more because the entire country will suffer if Labour remains disassociated from the working class. Paul joins me now alongside Gloria De Piero, host of GNT on Times Radio. Paul, you write in this week's magazine that the Labour Party has become disassociated from the working class. Can you start by explaining why you think this has happened? 
I think you can kind of trace it back probably to around the, the late 80s when Labour decided to swallow what I call a, a poisonous brew of social and economic liberalism. And I think the disconnect, if you like, has particularly intensified over the last 15 or so years. And I think that's largely around the impacts of globalisation in the early years of this century and what that caused in terms of deindustrialization and rapid demographic change. And I think many people in those kind of traditional working class communities who were, were unsettled by, by some of that stuff and by the pace and scale of the change as much as anything, look to their representatives in the Labour Party and the wider Labour movement to, to you know, stick up for them and were patronised with lectures about how this was, you know, how this was going to benefit them in terms of GPD and, uh, sorry, GDP rather, and, and cultural enrichment, etc. And I think since then, the, the Labour Party has had a real problem in terms of maintaining its traditional working class vote. And we saw, we saw in December last year exactly where that ended up. Gloria, is this a picture that you recognise? I recognise a lot of what Paul has said. I mean, if you look at the figures from that last election, Labour did brilliantly with graduates, but terribly with those without qualifications. And the Tories did better with working class voters, which I'm defining as C2D and E, than the Labour Party did. I think that is, it's disgraceful, frankly, because the Labour Party was set up to provide a voice for working class people in Parliament if they don't want to vote for you, then that's a really serious problem. And the Labour Party need to deal with that, not by, you know, all politicians say we love listening. But actually, I think there's been a tendency in the Labour Party over a fair number of years of saying, OK, we've listened to what you said. Now let's tell you why you're wrong. And that's so fundamentally flawed as an approach. Brexit, my goodness, was probably the worst example of that. I launched the Labour Remain campaign, Paul voted leave, but not for a millisecond did I think when leave won that vote that the Labour Party would effectively go on a journey of telling people, largely working class, more working class people voted to leave than not, went on a journey of telling them that they were morons, effectively. That was never going to work out well. <laughs> no. Paul, your, your new book is called Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class. Do you think the modern left has any interest in regaining traditional working class voters? Well, if they don't, then frankly, I think Labour is doomed. And what I argue in the book is the Labour Party has always been a traditional historical compromise between its kind of old industrial working class base, but also a kind of layer of more middle class urban liberals, if you like, who are attracted by the idea of a Labour government and a fairer economy and so on. And Labour is best when it can hold that coalition together. I've never argued that all Labour needs to do is appeal to its old traditional working class base and, and it can win electoral victories. I think that's nonsense. I think it does have to build a coalition. But what I say is, is the Labour Party has always been traditionally kind of Hartlepool and Hampstead together. That's, that's the coalition, mainly, mainly Hartlepool, but with, uh, with a good dash of Hampstead as well. Uh, I think the problem for the party is that over the last 30 years, and particularly over the last 15 or so years, 
that coalition has become completely unbalanced. And what we've seen is far more focus given to the, the Hampstead element of that equation, if you like. And that's coincided with the party itself, in my view, going through a transformation. The party now, compared to when I joined in 1994 even, the party is far more kind of middle class, rooted in the, the cities, um, very London, centric with that sort of metropolitan view of the world. It's a party largely now of kind of social activists and, and students and people living in the, the fashionable cities. And because it's gone through that change itself, I think its priorities have, have changed. And in the same way that, you know, when, when Labour won power under Blair in 97, the obligation, if you like, was on the working class element of, of the coalition to, to make sacrifices in order to, to appeal to, to more middle class liberals and to, to win power. Now it's the other way around. The pendulum now has to swing back the other way. And it's the, it's the middle class liberals within the party, if you like, who need to understand that the working class has fallen out of love with Labour. They've voted Tory millions of them for the first time in December. So that taboo has been broken. They won't hesitate to do it again if they think the Tories have delivered for them by the time of the next election. So the only way Labour is going to win power again is to focus laser-like on the, on the working class element, the Hartlepool element of the coalition. And if it doesn't do that, then I think the party's doomed as a serious electoral force. It will just become a party of permanent protest. Gloria, one of the points that Paul makes in his piece is that the Labour movement used to be associated with patriotism and liberty, but is now more associated with identity politics. Do you think that's part of the problem? And do you think Labour can regain perhaps its more culturally conservative voters? Well, I'm a sort of living example of what Paul described. So I grew up in um, a working class, well, a poor family. My parents didn't actually spend that much time in the workplace. But when they did, they had jobs rather than careers. So I grew up in Bradford. I go to university. I move to London. I end up in the media you don't think you're changing. You don't really recognise the changes that are happening to you along the way. I moved to Ashfield, where I'm talking to you from today, to fight this seat. I start knocking on doors in 2010, and it hits me like a truck. The chasm between what I've been discussing in my lovely little London media bubble to when I started knocking on doors in Ashfield, it was so stark. I thought... Britain had changed, but it was me that had changed. So patriotism, people around here, they love their country. Lots of their, their, their kids, they serve our country. They have a very strong work ethic. They believe that if you can work, you should work. And it struck me so much. And Paul is right. There was a very famous pamphlet written, actually, by Giles Radici, in the late 80s, early 90s, it was a Fabian Society pamphlet called Southern Discomfort, talking about the need for the party to recognise that you could never help people in Barnsley, which had these massive majorities, without winning seats in the south of England. And so Southern Discomfort was, was the very catchy name that he applied to that. If I could suggest... A different, not quite as catchy name, but the party needs now to discover, rediscover its northern soul. The emphasis has changed and Paul is absolutely right to recognise it. There is no Labour government without both parts of the coalition, but the focus now is absolutely must be on winning back those working class voters who, frankly, don't recognise themselves in the Labour Party. 
Paul, you mentioned globalisation earlier, and one of the points you make in your piece is that the working class blue collar community has experienced dramatic effects from it. Do you think there's now an opportunity for a more globalised labour movement? Well, I've, I've always I've always been in favour of an international labour movement. I mean, I do draw the distinction in the book between globalisation and internationalism, and I think the best of the of the labour movement is when it does show solidarity with workers abroad. But equally, I think the labour movement has been pretty appalling in recent years at recognising exactly what Gloria spells out as the, the kind of patriotism of the, the working classes and, and their own affinity for country. And it's not, and, and I think the problem is so many people in the Labour Party see any expression of patriotism as in inherently kind of xenophobic and bigoted and exclusionary. And it's not, the vast majority of working class people who I know, who love their country, don't do it for any kind of reasons of superiority, but it's just that quiet kind of benign, understated sense of patriotism. And I don't particularly want to see a country where we have kids, you know, saluting the Union Jack in school or, or singing the, the national anthem in, in assembly. I don't particularly like that kind of jingoism, but people have, a, have an affection for their, own, for their own country. So, I mean, in terms of the, the, the wider question around globalization and the, the economics of it. I mean, I think you only have to look at what's gone, in, gone on in this country in, in the last 15 and 20 years in terms of globalization and the impact of deindustrialization and the effect that that has had on working class communities, working class communities where there were previously solid, stable ind industries providing a good number of blue collar jobs. And that in itself, I think, brings a certain comfort to the to the local community and a certain stability to the to the local community and as a result of globalization we now see a kind of world of work where there's the, the gig economy there's transient employment the precariat as it's called and when those when those solid stable long-term blue collar jobs flow out the door it can really impact and i saw it in my own community in dagenham where i grew up where the obviously the world famous ford plant which was there for decades and, and provided good solid employment for thousands of people locally and when production pretty much ended there at the beginning of the century and and it was shipped abroad to germany the impact on the on the community was immense and when you combine that with the kind of rapid demographic change that also occurs as a result of globalization and free movement etc it's almost like communities are caught in the perfect storm and i think it's a really sad thing because i mean on Im immigration for example i actually think we're a tolerant country and i think if we I, I think the vast majority of people including in my own home community where i where i grew up would have been quite open to the idea of welcoming people as long as numbers were modest and manageable but i think as a result of free movement and the kind of left's open borders philosophy where working class communities were just basically told look you know irrespective of numbers just get on with it suck it up that, I think, toxified the debate, it poisoned the debate, and it's become a running sore in our society. And, and all of that, I think, can be traced to globalisation to a large degree. So, yes, I think, I think there is a debate to be had now, especially after Brexit, about where we go with all of that sort of stuff. Thank you, Gloria, and thank you, Paul. And finally, in this week's issue, Kate Chisholm says that the controversial new statue of Mary Wollstonecraft by Maggie Hambling on Newington Green in North London should be celebrated. In fact, she says, Wollstonecraft herself would have enjoyed the ongoing debate about it. Julie Bindle disagrees and says it looks like an ugly Christmas decoration. Julie and Kate both join me now. Kate, in this week's magazine, you write about the new sculpture of Mary Wollstonecraft. Why has it caused so much controversy? 
Well, I think because there were two options when the campaign were looking into putting a statue up there. One was a more traditional statue based on, I think, the portrait by John Opie. And the other one was this was this much more organic, imaginative sculpture by Maggie Hambling, who's always produced quite controversial work. And I suppose when there was a big excitement about this statue being unveiled because there hasn't been one of Mary Wollstonecraft and there there should have been. And people were therefore very surprised when what they saw on the top of this statue was this tiny little figure of a nude woman on top of a, a sort of an organic mass, which is quite hard to understand. So I think that's why there's been such a controversy about it. But I think it's it's underestimating Mary Wollstonecraft by the controversy existing, if you like. And Julie, it's fair to say that you you don't like it. You've written in a piece for Al Jazeera that it's a Christmas decoration and not a very nice one at that. What what don't you like about it in particular? Well, it's ugly. It's just not very good. I think Hamlin's a really interesting artist. I think some of her painting is is wonderful, but I don't think she's a sculptor. And actually, she's certainly not a feminist. I mean, just because she's a woman with a big mouth and big opinions and, you know, is quite a kind of quirky character doesn't make her a feminist. So I'm really surprised that she was commissioned to do this. I mean, where I disagree, I think, with the piece is that I don't think this is about identity politics because women aren't an identity. It's not like we're kind of blue fringe unicorns or non-binary penguins were half the planet and and so I don't think it's about identity politics or political correctness that she probably was chosen because she's a big name and they wanted something a bit kind of postmodern and a bit different but it's ended up looking like it's been sat by the gas fire for too long unlike unlike other feminists I don't actually have an objection at all to having no clothes on I mean there are some feminist commentators saying, well, you wouldn't have a man, you know, of this magnitude with his schlong out. Well, clearly, they've forgotten all the uh, the statues of men that do actually have their schlongs out, to, to <laughs> call them that phrase. It's true. Uh, but do you think it's feminist to not depict her in clothes? Or is it more feminist to depict her in clothes? The, the fact is that the figure on the top is not Mary Wollstonecraft. It's a female figure, but it's not a specific Mary Wollstonecraft. And what I think Maggie Hambling was trying to get at. And I'm not arguing that it's a beautiful piece. There's, there's things about it which are quite odd, but I think it's interesting. It's thought provoking, it's, it's provocative. The figure on the top is a representation of some human form coming out of this organic mass and being born like the new genus that Mary Wollstonecraft wanted to be. And that's what she said she wanted to be. She wanted to be the new genus. She wanted to be something different. She wanted to actually crack through the established ideas about a justice and what was fair. And I, I think to describe her as a feminist, I, I, I'm afraid I find that limiting. It's not that I don't think we should, that we should argue for women's rights, but I think that she was far more interested in rights for everyone. And she was very concerned about the way that women were abused and particularly the girls were not educated. That really bothered her. But I think to describe her as a feminist is, is somehow undermining the basis of her work which was much more about what was justice for everyone. I don't know of a feminist on the planet that just cares about women and couldn't care less about other marginalised groups. The point about feminism is that you centre women and girls in the struggle for liberation from patriarchy, from male supremacy 
because we're the only movement on the planet that actually does prioritise women and girls, the only one. And so, you know, if you if you actually read a vindication of the rights of women, which I'm sure you have, you know, she clearly was concerned about the lack of rights, human rights, that women weren't seen as human. And that's why she's so often described as the godmother of the movement. I don't necessarily agree with that. She was certainly a feminist and she cared about other marginalised groups. And I think that the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. But I mean, the, the point about sculpture is that I don't think it represents her at all. Like I say, I have absolutely no, no concerns whatsoever about the fact that she's wearing no clothes. What, what I actually care about is that it doesn't give me a sense at all of the essence of Wollstonecraft or her work. And I think it is literally just a kind of bit of a quirky art piece that relates to nothing in particular. But when you say when you say it doesn't relate to her, what in what and how should it have related to her? Because the plinth at the bottom says for Mary Wollstonecraft, right? It doesn't say to Mary Wollstonecraft. It says for Mary Wollstonecraft. It's saying this is this is dedicated for her work, if you like. And so, I'm, well, what what would you say was would represent Mary Wollstonecraft? What would represent her then? Well, clearly the wording at the bottom of the statue could just be a plaque in the ground. You know, it could be a headstone. But, but Julie, if, if that was the case, do you think people would be talking about Mary Wollstonecraft as much as they are right now? That's a very good point. That That is the strength of, I think, the debate around it. Art is there to be to be kind of loved, hated and not much in between, I think. To be dismissed, to be celebrated. And, and of course, to provoke, and that's the most important thing. So I'm not saying that the statue is pointless. I'm not saying that it hasn't actually brought about, you know, broader interest in, in Wollstonecraft and her work. I was working on the green recently. I wouldn't have particularly gone to, to see the statue otherwise, but, but I, did, I did see it. And I saw that there were a lot of young women who were really interested, looking at it, taking photographs, posing by it. And I thought, good. That's great. And but the Kate, statue itself is ugly. Kate, Kate says in her piece that Wollstonecraft would have enjoyed the bitter arguments about the rightness and worth of the statue. Do you agree with that, Julie? Absolutely. I'm sure she would. I mean, that, that was her character. And I don't think there's any harm to the statue at all. I cannot believe that there are feminists who write. I mean, I mentioned the statue, I think, in two lines in, a, in, a, in quite a long column. I can't believe that there are columnists who are, who are spending hours and hours of their time writing a thousand words or more about why they really hate it. Why would you do that? You know, it's it served its purpose in one way. It's a mystery to me, you know, why Hamblin was commissioned to do it. But then, you know, maybe it served the purpose. Great. And just finally, Kate, do you think the fact that it's a female artist who created it somehow makes it a bit more acceptable? Well, yes, I think I think definitely a statue for Mary Wollstonecraft would have to be done by a woman. I think that 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 sort of almost goes without saying. And I suppose I I, I think that it's really questioning the organic mass at the bottom. There's a sort of praying annunciation figure there. There's the serpent, the biblical serpent. I mean, it, it really does make you think. And I suppose what I'd really like to do is have a conversation with Maggie Hambling to sort of talk, wonder what she read because that. Looking at the statue itself, you can see quotations from Mary Wollstonecraft popping in and around it. And whether or not she'd read Mary Wollstonecraft before she created it, I do not know. But I think, I think that it has its elements, which I, I, I agree. I find the silvery hue very garish and not at all, as I would imagine, anything to do with Mary Wollstonecraft. But I, I, I found it really interesting, as she was herself. Kate and Julie, thank you so much. And that's it for this week. You can read everything we've talked about, as well as more, from Ian Rankin on his plans for a post-COVID 
pub crawl. I think that's what we all need right now, isn't it? And Dr. Stuart Ritchie on how to win over anti-vaxxers. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.